Hi, welcome to episode two, Dead's Not Punk, podcast that was set up with myself, Ewan Grant, and my co-host, Stuart Knight. Hello. Um, well, we never thought we'd get by episode one, did we? This is a massive achievement. We're at episode two. This is the difficult second episode. Yeah, wait till we get to the difficult third album. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that, that will be the hard one. But uh, we've been, you know, really surprised about how many people were actually interested in our little anecdotes about uh, being fans of a, a musical phenomenon that happened in the 70s but uh, it really came across that uh, in some of the feedback people were educated in some way people were you know surprised that we knew so much yeah and I, being say, so I, I was really amazed by um how well people from like all over the world we thought we'd be doing really well just getting down to Eldwich <laughs> or Islington, or <laughs> you know. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, but no, we've had comments from you know North America, South America, Australia, um, Scotland, England, Ireland, and Wales, and yeah. even Central Europe. So, thanks for all of you. Some of you will get a special mention from time to time because. Mm. Uh, You've given us some more information as well, which we'd like to feed into, you know, as a start to episode two, five minutes of looking back on some of the things that were brought up from episode one. And we felt, I don't know about you, sure, but I felt a lot of episode one sort of surrounded with the Damned because the Damned were that band that released that first punk rock single. Well, I mean, you're not going to get any complaint from me because I'm a massive Damned fan <laughs> and they're, they're very important to me. So you're absolutely right there. We did talk a lot about the Damned and we talked a lot about the Damned in, and the Doomed and we had a lot of people coming back to us, well, I'll say a lot, you know, a lot out of the listeners and people that have listened to the podcast, but it seemed like a lot, um, telling us about some of the history of the damned and the doomed, um, which was particularly interesting. And yeah, it took me by surprise that, that Lemmy was in the doomed. Yeah, I mean, the Lemmy obviously played with the damned, you know, for a brief period, putting some demos together, and he did a handful of shows. Which obviously ties into, you know, the episode one stuff about Hot Wind and Lemmy. Yeah. And I think, to be honest, Motorhead as well were very much more the punk side of rock music rather than the Judas Priest of rock. Yeah. You know, I mean, Lemmy definitely had, you know, a lot of influence in punk. And, uh, you know, we went back and we looked at the time that he was in uh, The Doomed. I think he only did about seven or eight gigs. He only did a few gigs and he did some demos and it was right, it was when the band were going in to get together with for Machine Gun Etiquette and obviously there'd been some changes and Brian James had left and Lou Edmonds had left um, and there were some sort of trademark concerns and so there was a lineup. I think there was another band called Les Punks which was a kind of filler name right. that, that I think Ratscabies was involved in um, and Les being his first name? No, no, no not, was not he a Les, solo artist? Les Dawson <laughs> Oh, Les Punks maybe right, Les Punks, sort of French very thing. French, yeah, yeah and uh, and there was an, and that was 1979 as they were getting together to do Machine Gun Etiquette and then right. Algie Ward and then there was a I think there was a bass player called Henry Badowski on right. the bass okay. and please do come back to us again <laughs> if you've got more information but then Algie Ward who was in the Saints he was in the Saints yeah, yeah. was in the Saints joined uh, and I think um, the Saints from the Australian band 
And I'm going to... What was the other single? I'm stranded. And that's it, yeah. yeah and I'm going to be really, really train spottery here and say, during a December 78 tour, we're going off piste again, a guy called Gary Holton filled in for Vanian. Gary Holton was in... Uh, Scotland. That tour. Was he not in a Vidozine pit? Um, was he not the actor that played the guy? Or am I off on a tangent? I think, I, think we're, I think we're drifting into the arena of the unwell here. Yeah. Um, um, but I think he was in a band called the Heavy Metal Kids. All right. Okay, but we're, we're like getting too ridiculously down a rabbit hole. So, so thank you, everybody, for coming so yeah, back to the, us. The Damned and the Doomed. And also, I mentioned in the first one, you know, about uh, the greatest drummers of all time. And uh, I mentioned the fact that I definitely put Rat Scabies in there in my top five yeah. and, you know, wondered what he was up to. And... Uh, Again, thanks to one of our listeners, we got sent a link to uh, a website called derwoodandrews.com, which is Derwood, who used to be in Generation X, and Rat Scabies' musical project that they're doing at the moment. So if you want to check them out, it's at derwoodandrews.com. Yeah, and uh, anything else happened over the last couple of weeks of, of note that we should... Uh... Well, I mean, there was the real sad death of Wilco yeah. Johnston, yeah, yeah. which I think we can't really go into this episode without mentioning because we started off in the last episode talking about pub rock and those we did. Sort of yeah. the 70s period, and of course Dr Feelgood and Wilco Johnson were you know, really instrumental in that. And obviously he did a load of stuff with people like Ian Jury, he even did, I mean, I'm just in really recent times, he did a tour with Hugh Cornwall from The Stranglers. I think he did, yeah, yeah. Um, um, he was also in Game of Thrones. He was. He did which I didn't, I didn't know that. He was the executioner guy. What was his name? Oh. Sil Il- Ilian Payne or some some suitably fantasy. Yeah, because he, he originally, I think, was diagnosed with cancer in 2014. That's, and went into, you know, recovered yeah. well enough to continue touring. And obviously got an acting career out of it as well. So, rest in peace, Wilco. Uh really sad when that news came through um I think yeah he, i think it was a bit of a blow because you know everyone had thought he because he, he did that tour didn't he which was his you know he was he was he was going to die and then he kind of was all, then he got the all clear and then this sort of happened so really sad to hear about that our yep. thoughts go out to friends and family um but but a, a, a great guy and, 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 and badly missed. But, so, episode two. Episode two. Here we are. Here we are. I've yeah. got something I need to say about episode okay, two. The couple of th- other comments that we've had, one regarding the audio on episode one. Yeah. As we were brand new to this, we didn't know what we were doing. Right? And we've, we subsequently realised that one of the microphones wasn't turned on. So yeah. we've now... Uh, sorted that and hopefully you will get this uh, podcast in beautiful stereo in your, your earbuds or however you listen to this podcast but uh, I apologise for that we'll just put it down to punk rock and DIY yeah we can now play three chords which means we're, we're sort of pretty set for <coughs> our first punk rock band but I mean yeah we are learning to apologies for any sound issues a- any more than three chords do you remember yeah it's just three chords I mean, we can, a talking machine going to together do you remember this sleeve inside yeah. that showed you how to play three chords so. yeah any more than three chords and it's yeah. jazz yeah <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah, and on, off, off the back of that, we also had some comment about our, our profile on, on Spotify and how 
it, it looked as though some of the letters were in lowercase and some of them were in uppercase. We just decided to do that because it looked a bit punk rock and a bit funny. Yeah, so yeah, I don't think I don't I don't hear anyone complaining about Jamie Reed's artwork on <laughs> yeah. on them on the bollocks or anything. So we're 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 sticking with it. We thought it was funny. So yeah, that's and, we, why. and yeah. we want we we desperately you know are trying to make this as entertaining as possible. As discussed in episode one, you know we have uh, there's so many stories we could tell and talk about, and we want to make it entertaining for your. However, listen, you listen to your podcast, whether it's on your way to work or on the commute and, you know, whatever. We want to try and make it slightly entertaining so that you'll have a laugh along with us. So, so in episode one, we covered 75, 76? Pretty much. I yeah. mean, we jumped around a bit. We talked about sort of, and there's a bit of, there was a lot of early sort of context, but it was essentially that period. And now we get into a pretty pivotal, pivotal year with 76, 77. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I guess so much happened that we are not going to cover it all. No. We are not in 45 minutes, but we are going to cover some of the kind of key moments. Um, I mean, where should we start on this? You know, uh, Bill Grundy. Well, Bill, Bill Grundy was, I mean, I, well, there's 76, obviously, where you're starting to get the bands forming. Bands like the Adverts, bands like the Clash, bands like the Sex Pistols are are coalescing and coming together in 1976. Yeah, and you are then getting very early gigs, which are seen by other people. You've got you know the Sex Pistols playing those really early shows. You know bands like Buzzcocks and stuff are seeing them and forming other bands. So the real there, was a, there was a lot of bands you know that formed 76. That to be honest. I think, and we, we talked about this again in episode one, they jumped on a bit of a bandwagon about what would happen in London, right? Yeah. And uh, I mentioned that about what was happening in Glasgow, and, you know, at that time as well. And there was a lot of bands, you know, are they punk? Are they trying to be punk? Are they, you know, they've got, uh, they're on a, a billing at the Roxy yeah. or they're on a billing at the Marquee or whatever. And, uh, you know, and some of them went on to, you know, do brilliant things, but uh, some of them just shouldn't have been allowed to survive. And one of them is a band who we had a discussion about. <laughs> Name me a Lurkers single. Oh, my God. I think it's really difficult. The Lurkers are kind of in there, aren't they? And I'm going to have to look it up because I can't remember what it's called. But, um, was it called Shadow? That's it. Yeah, was it? that was that the hit? Was that the one? That oh, were on? Was there a hit? I don't think it was a hit. Oh, they were on top of the pops. Really? They got on top. The Lurkers got on top of the pops. They were signed to. Um, they were signed to Beggars Banquet because they were based in Fulham. They were based in Fulham. Well, are they from Oxbridge? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so it's that. And you but you're right about Beggars Banquet. I think I'm even going to put one in. And please. Do email us, devsnotpunkpod at gmail.com or I think the Twitter, you can get Twitter or, Twitter or Instagram. Pod. Yeah. Not punk pod at Twitter or devsnotpunkpod on Instagram. But please, please tell me your, your information on the workers. Well, they were, I'm going to go out there on a limb and say they were the first band in Beggars. I think you're right. I mean, I'm not... I'm not sure because I'm not a massive fan. And I, I thought that was because they signed when Beggars had the shop in Putney, which is 
you know, the, the shop used to be just at the, the far end of Putney Bridge. That was my. That's where I got the association with Fulham yeah. and the workers in Fulham. But you say it was a hit. I mean, I don't, I don't even think it was. I don't think <laughs> Shadow was in the top forty. I think it straight. I think it was a John Peel favourite. No, then, no, no. I think they got on top of the pops. Yeah, and, and at that time, you couldn't get on top of the pops unless you were top forty or above. And you might be right. I'm not sure. I, I seem to remember that they're one of those bands, a bit like the Members. Sound of the Suburbs, where they pop oh, up. You on, do? Oh, you do? I quite like them. I really like that track. But they yeah. pop up on Icky, loads of those. Like Tesco. Yeah, and yeah. they pop up on loads of those compilations. So it's like punk. <laughs> they were probably cheap to license. Yeah, Mind yeah. you, let me say this. If any of the members of the Lurkers are <laughs> listening to the pod, we, we love you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we're not we're not slagging you off. You guys yeah, are in there. You're part of the story. We're we, the first band on Bloody Vegas Banking. Exactly. You know, so... And and some of the people that have co- we've had comments from are from bands and artists around about this time as well. So, you know, the prefix. Who are they? Oh my God! We're, we're all right. So just just rewind <laughs> a little bit, right? 1976. Okay. So the band. So the set. The Sex Pistols played Manchester Free Market Hall. Free Trade Hall. Free Trade Hall, sorry. Yeah. Free Market Hall is my Freudian slip. Which everybody my... said there was at that, that, yeah, that every, There's the gig everyone was at, but there was... 26 the... people. Yeah. And the members of Warsaw were there who went on to be joined. Division, and, yeah, and, and Buzzcocks and... I think Mick Hucknall was there as well. One oh. of my most hated people from Manchester. Oh, well, he, he might have been. I probably had a different hair. Well, he, his band were called the 13th... No, the, the Frantic... Frantic, Frantic Elevators. Elevators. Yeah. I was about to say the thirteenth floor elevators. Completely different band, and a well liked band of mine uh, from the sixties. Yeah. The Frantic Elevators was Mick Hucknall's first band before Simply Simply Duff. Yeah. Well, Sim- Simply Ginger. <laughs> so the so free so seventy six is almost like year zero for punk, particularly in the UK, because obviously all the stuff in the US had happened at CBs and all that. Other yeah. Stuff, which we're not going to talk about. On this episode, because we covered so much of it last time. So in the in the uh, crowd, obviously, well, I say crowd in the gathering of people at the gig, <laughs> the twenty six people. Yeah, I mean, there was, as you say, Warsaw, so Joy Division, New, New Order, The Fall, yep, and The Smiths. I think Stephen Morris who was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is an epoch defining event. Definitely. It? So you've got nineteen seventy six starts to unpunk. Unpunk, unpack, punk. <laughs> unpack, yeah. punk. Uh, unpack, punk. Um, yeah. uh, it, it, it's, you know, and uh, so I think it's we need to think about that, and then this episode is going to be where do we go from there? Yeah. Seventy six, obviously, other things happened. We get to you know, and I'm jumping ahead from the beginning of seventy six to the end, but the, obviously the infamous Bill Grundy, uh, yeah, incident, which exploded punk out from the fringes into the mainstream when they appear on Bill Grundy's show The Today programme on ITV. Yeah, I, I, I remember the furore at the time, if that's old furore. Um, yeah. But at the time, I don't even know if we got The Today programme in Scotland because we, ITV has a different uh, channel in Scotland. It's called STV. Yeah. So we had... We we were probably watching Take the High Road or some nonsense like that yeah. at that point when uh, <laughs> when yeah. when Bill Grundy's thing was on, but it was the next day really when yeah. the Daily Mirror led with the headline on the front page of the Filth and the Fury. The Filth and the Fury, obviously, um, a 
yeah, I think that, yeah, the Daily Mirror came out on the second of December, nineteen seventy-six, the day after they did the yeah. Filthy Fury. And of course, in the audience, there you've got Susie Sue. She she says, "I've always wanted to meet you." And and then you've got Jordan standing there. They're all goading each other on. Yeah, well, because he kept the, he firmly says at his opening line on the program is, "I think they're as drunk as I am." Right. And then he's flirting with Susie, and of course, they've all been in the. Green, in the green room beforehand, they're all hammered. I mean, there's loads, there's tons of this yeah, on. Yeah. It's all on YouTube. Yeah. yeah. And of course, Julian Temple then famously makes the Sex Pistols documentary, The Filth and the Fury, which, incidentally, if you've not seen it, anyone, that is my big recommendation because it is the best documentary that captures the Sex Pistols, I think. Forget Pistol and all that nonsense. Well, Pistol, we talked about Pistol before. Yeah, Pistol was on. Yeah, if you want to find out about the Pistols, you've yeah, got to yeah. watch The Filth and Fury. Julian Temple, I'm just going to go back to Wilco Johnson because um, I think Julian Temple actually made a documentary about Wilco Johnson. Right. Um, which was called Oil, uh, Oil City Confidential. Oh, rings, don't quote me on that. that I, ring, might, I might have got that wrong. That rings a bell. Yeah. Um, anyway, let's not overdo it. Um, so uh, that's 1976 <laughs> in about five minutes. I, I mean, I think we all yeah. Think there's lo- loads more. Loads more we can touch on. Let, let's look at some of the other bands, right? You know, Chelsea. Yeah, that was Gene October. Gene October. Who? I mean, and they were. I mean, and also we've got a talking to Chelsea. And there was other, but there was other characters from other bands in Chelsea. Was Billy Idol not in Chelsea for a while? Um, you've got oh, fuck, um, no Tony James Tony James I knew it was somebody Tony from Generation James, X yeah. Tony James uh, who obviously Generation X yeah. was his first band yeah. that got commercial success and then went on to form Sig Sig Sputnik who became a bit of a laughing stock of the music industry in the 80s but uh, released the fir- first ever album to feature adverts during the songs yeah. So they sold the songs to brands and they had adverts between the songs on um, the first album. Not an album that's going to stay in the uh, icons of history of albums of all time, the first Six Six Booknik album. But, yeah. but, you know, he had an idea of how to commercialise music, Tony. And, uh, and then I, th- I think he ended up in the Sisters of Mercy as the bass player in Sisters of Mercy during the mid-80s as well. I'm going to give you a little fact about Chelsea. Okay. Right? Because in the, a little while ago, we just talked about The Damned and The Doomed, and I mentioned that guy, Henry Badowski, right, okay. uh, who was in Chelsea. Was he? Yeah. What, did he play left-back? No, he was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think he was in Chelsea, and I'm, don't quote me on that. And the other, so there's a couple of other things about Chelsea. Famous single, The Right to Work, yep. which was, you know... It was really, a small wonder, I believe. Well, um, oh, you no. right, yeah, you've thrown me off the train of thought now, but yeah, probably right. Right to work, and then of course Gene October appears in the Derek Jarman Jubilee film, which, right. think, which comes out the following year. We haven't got to seventy-seven yet. No, we haven't. We're so, so some 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 fantastic things. Um, so why else? So other bands. You were talking about bands from nineteen seventy-six. So what was going on in Scotland? Again, roughly about this time, seventy-six, seventy-seven. There was still a lot of. Uh, what you'd see, we spoke about before, about pub rock bands that were sort of jumping into um, what looked a bit 
punky, but wasn't yeah. you know certainly anything to do with what was happening out of you know London and Manchester with mm. Buzzcocks in Manchester and obviously what was the Clash, the Pistols and all that uh, down in London and the One O Oneers. Well, I mean the One O Oneers. They came from that pub rock. Well, scene. I think the One O Oneers disbanded in '76. They did. They that did. Was the, that was the end of them. I mean, look, '76 was loads of bands. The Ramones album comes out. Yeah, yeah. You know, so you know, the, the, and then you've got New Rose. Yep. Um, you've also got. You did you mention the Saints? I'm stranded. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was great. That was in '76. So that was from Australia as well. Yeah. So how how they how did they jump onto the punk thing in the I, UK? I well, I, I don't know. I mean, it must it's bubbling up through the, the underground now. I think I mentioned in episode one. Obviously, I wasn't here. I only came yeah, yeah. to the UK in '77, but um, and which we'll talk about in a minute. But then you've got the Anarchy in the UK tour. Yeah, yeah. 1976, and you've also got the Hundred Club Two Day Festival. Hang on, who was the American band that was in the Anarchy tour? Was it Johnny Thunders? Yeah, Johnny Thunders. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I am sure. Yeah, it was. Cause Johnny Thunders t- did the Anarchy tour and Richard Hill did the Clash tour. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah and yeah. then you've got the two day, so then some massive things happened because you've got the two day festival at the 100 Club. Yeah. And that's when you start to see Susie Banshees who pl- do their first play on the first night, I think. And that is Susie Sue, who's on drums. Sid Vicious. Sid Vicious. Yeah. And, and on the guitar, and Marco, Marco Peroni. Marco Peroni from Adam and the Ants. Yeah. And so they famously did The Lord's Prayer. She, that's what they did. That was their first song. Yeah. Which appears, I think, on a Susie album, Join Hands. Th- not the first Susie album. It was no, something that came, it, it, something yeah, yeah. That came later, yeah. yeah. So look, it's really, it's really tempting to sit here and just try and chronologically yeah, yeah. talk about... Susie, you know, is... Susie were great. I mean, I saw Susie and Banshees loads of times, and you know, but in a way, I'm really glad they don't play anymore. They, they're one of these bands that, you know, when we went to Rebellion, you know, you could see everything that was from the yeah. Jam to yeah. Theatre Hate to you know whoever, yeah. right? Yeah. You could stiff little fingers to the boys to yeah. you could you could see them all, yeah. and they've they've all matured gracefully and un- and ungracefully some of them right yeah. but you know with Susie and the Banshees I'm just like the songs some of the songs were great there's a great there's a great greatest hits I was Susie talking the to uh, my mate who I worked with about Susie and the Banshees the other day actually and we were talking about best Susie and the Banshees songs and obviously the only, you know you've got Hong Kong Garden yeah. and not, the, not the Beatles cover versions Hong Kong Garden was the first single well I, I liked uh, Love and Avoid was that before Hong Kong Garden? And, and Playground and um, uh, there's a, there's earlier. You know songs. that Hong Kong Garden is written about a Chinese restaurant That's in right, Capital. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I do. Anyway, anyway, let's not get let's not get bogged down with Susie and the Banshees. Although we do like Susie and the Banshees, particularly the early songs. Yeah. Um, but so there, oh, are sorry, there was another of, thing about sorry yeah. about the Banshees, but another great thing was the branding. They were one of these bands that the image followed them. Right, yeah. and it was an image that also also spanned out of punk and into what was happening in the eighties, yeah. certainly in goth. Yeah. But the whole imagery that she had around her, and the, you know how important that is to music. 
i.e. music and brands. You know, it's well, you know, there's tons to talk about with Susie we could, yeah, and, we could go on all and, and how they influence other things, and you know, and and I, and I just want to mention that now, seventy six. What we're talking about here, seventy six to seventy seven, really influential years in the development of punk, and there were some amazing bands that you know formed. And I think I remember talking to you in the last episode about bands I wish I'd seen at the time, and one of those is the Adverts. I never saw. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, great, great band um, in, in the day, and they were one of the bands that formed in 1976. And, and the other thing we talked about was, with, in future episodes, we're looking to get some guests on, and you know, there are some people that I'm really keen to talk to, and we will be doing guests. And you know, Gay Black would be, you know, up there in my top three. Oh yeah. Just because brilliant look, great band, you know. You know, was involved with you know the guys from Motorhead and the Damned, and just just a really really great band. And then of course you've other, you've got other things as well. We talked about Chelsea Buzzcocks forming in America, of course Black Flag coming together, so the scene started to develop into the into the you know into punk as we know it. And I mean in America, you know another one another band that formed, who I saw again on numerous occasions, the Cramps. Well, that's a great one. Um, <laughs> I mean, unbelievable band life. Um, you know, and, and a funny one really because um, they, they where had, do they sit in the sort of pantheon of the well, Cramps? You know, with their the whole sound was based on rock and roll. Yeah, fifties rock and roll. Yeah, and the whole you know the image of Poison Ivy was very much you know the sort of uh, very. Uh, what McLaren was trying to do before he started sex when he well, used the two, well, two, yeah, two, yeah, all the teddy boy suits and yeah. all that and the, you know sort of rock and roll outfits with the brothel keepers yeah. and you know the pointy shoes and all of that that was yeah. very much coming from you know sort of 50s rock and roll they also had that real kind of you know they were part of that CBGB's Maxis Kansas City you know, um, I'm all, I was almost going to go Velvet Underground-y type of thing, but they definitely came out of that, you know, um, burlesque type of vibe. Yeah, yeah. And um, oh, I really hate using the word vibe, um, uh, given particularly what I said about hippies in the last episode. <laughs> um, but I really loved the Greatest Hits sort of mini album that came out, and it was with Human Fly on it. And I remember going into Revolver Records in Wellingborough, uh, when I lived in Northampton and looking at it and I bought and, I, and, that, and in that time this must have been 1979 because mm. I bought Crass's first record Shaved Women and Reality Asylum 45p still got it and I bought that Cramps album Songs of Love no the greatest it was called Greatest it was the one with Human Fly on it Off the Bone no, off, no, no, that no. Was, it was called Greatest Hits right okay. off, the, off the Bone is the like a best, the best of, of yeah. you got a 3D sleeve. Yeah, you got the glasses with the album. Yeah, but great, Greatest Hits was the sort of like, you know, and, there, and there's a picture on the back of the, of, the, of the album of a kind of gig with people, someone climbing over some seats and stuff, and it looked really punk, and I thought, this is great. And, and, I, and, I, and of course, I, you know, I'm playing it and listening to the Cramps, and I've heard about them and stuff, and of course they're not like a normal punk band. No, well, not like anything you'd ever heard. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, funnily enough... Uh, before lockdown, I um, I think the exhibition's still going on. There's a Clash exhibition on at the uh, London Museum, 
next near where the barbecue is. Yeah. Right, and uh, basically it's got that bass guitar that Paul Simon smashed as part of the exhibition. Yeah. But it also had uh, on the wall albums that influenced The Clash and songs the Lord taught us but the Cramps was one of them well that whole kind of rockabilly thing that yeah, yeah. The, the Clash had is was moving into where yeah. they were going on London yeah. Calling on some of the tracks there which then they took that one step fuller on uh, Combat Rock yeah so and then of course you know which strummer with the Tino Rockabilly War and exactly. the rest of his history isn't it yeah so god where are we going with this so of course 76 oh okay so another big thing that happens in 1976 of course is you know, bands are starting to play at the Roxy. So, you know, uh, right, I, I am also going to, you know, so before we get to 77... Roxy, no, Covent Garden. The Roxy venue in Covent Garden, are we going to talk about that? Everybody, you've talked about Chelsea, we've talked about, you know, a load of the bands that have formed. 76 is really influential. There's a ton of bands playing in that, you know, formed in that year, in, the, in that year. I think a lot of it, to be honest, has been pretty much detailed elsewhere. If you wanted to find out, what, you know, the type of bands that were on at the Roxy, um, the people who were behind the Roxy were important as well because they were, like, you know, the promoter. His name is Andy something. I can't remember his surname. I think it Polish sounded surname, but they went on to run clubs in London after the Roxy, and they ran a variety. They ran the the Fridge in Brixton. No. Yeah, they went on to run the fridge in Brixton, which is now the electric in Brixton. It's very difficult to talk about the guy who started the Roxy because his name's got his name has got too many consonants and not enough vowels in it. It's Chesowski. It's Andy something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, uh, so he was responsible for a lot, being a promoter and being you know running running that venue and allowing these things to happen in there. But I'd say the, one of the things that I'd like to touch on without going through all of the list of this and the list of that. Of who played was the DJ. Well, that's Don Letts. Yeah, yeah. And Don Letts was a massive influence on why reggae became, you know, part of what was happening mm -hmm. in punk. And probably a lot of that was responsible for what happened in '79 with the two-tone scene, which became part of punk as well. Mm -hmm. You know, you had. Um, I mean, to, at that point, I'll be honest with you: the only reggae that I'd heard was Bob Marley. Well, he was playing Burning Spear and, 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 and yeah. Tapazuki and all of those sorts of things. He was spinning reggae, big, deep reggae tunes, Steel Pulse and stuff like that yeah. in the Roxy. And, of course, a massive influence on punk. And the whole thing, you know, with the Clash going on to do what they did with the Rock Against Racism. And, and of course, there was a real collision between oh, punk and the Rastas and, and reggae because of... On the, the London Calling Tour, the, uh, the main support was Mikey Dread. Yeah. Dread so, at the Controls, great album. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. So, so, uh, you, so you had a real... But I, I'm talking that that was probably a real big influence on Jerry Daniels when the, you know, of what mm. Don Letts was playing at the Roxy, yeah. you know, uh, and bringing, you know, Caribbean music over to the UK and that whole sort of uh, the Windrush generation that was around in London at that point, you know, that were now adults, you know, that had been brought over here by their parents in yeah. the 50s and 60s and they were becoming... You know, early twenties at that point, and you know, to have Don Letts as a DJ, it was just you know, what what a, what a great idea to have somebody doing a type of music that wasn't necessarily three chords, and you know, and playing Ramones records. Do you know what I mean? Totally, and uh, I have to say that I read 
Um, I read Don Letts' book when it came out, and I can't remember what it was called. I think it's called There and Black Again. All right, Something okay. Like that. No, I haven't read that one. Yeah. Uh, I've read his Culture Clash books and stuff. So if you want, so a couple of good books to read about the time. Jordan, I think we mentioned before, Define Gravity, Don, Don Letts, There and Black Again, which you know, he talks about his formative years in London and the influence his folks had on you know playing music and and then his time working at Acme, Acme Attractions, you know, and, and, and how that sort of the interplay between that and Vivian Westwich. He um he also does a show on Six Music. It's a brilliant show. Yeah. So you should yeah. check him out on the uh, BBC iPlayer. Not that we're here to advertise BBC. There are other channels out there yeah. that you can you yeah. can listen to. But and he's also signed a new record deal. He's got a new album out early next year. Has he really? Yeah, he's signed to uh, Cook and Vinyl. Right. Um, so and he's been posting little teasers on his uh, social media. So he'd be one to check out. You know, just see what he's up to now. Always a thought of him as very credible in. Uh, and when he was at the Hundred Club, not only was sorry, not the Hundred Club. When he was at the Roxy, he was not only DJing, he was filming most oh, of yeah, it. Oh yeah, because he made the punk rock movie. He made the yeah. punk rock movie. So, so I am also going to throw one out there about the Roxy. Do you remember in the last episode we talked about going to Rebellion and seeing the most popular T-shirt, Fox Yeah, played at the Roxy. Did they? Yeah, in the first hundred days. Right, now okay. I I am learning about Coxbarra since we've started talking about them because they were never on my radar. No, 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 no. And I apologise to the members of Coxbarra <laughs> for for that. We it's, couldn't like everything. No, <laughs> too busy liking so many other things. Yeah, Fla- um, flares and slippers by Cockney Rejects. <laughs> but I never knew that Coxbarra started in 1972. So were they part of the skinhead movement? Yeah, where, they were like Slade. London, they were part of the pub glamour. Do you remember thing? Slade? Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, yeah. they were part of that movement as well. Was that round about then? Yeah, well, they were originally called Cox Sparrow. And right. And then they kind of evolved on. Um, but then, yeah, so they were... All, anyway, you know, we talked a lot about them last time, so I don't want to get too... No, no. You know, but... Um, so, so yeah, Don Letts, I wanted to get that in, but moving on from that, um, you know... Did we, have we touched on the boat party? Right, so, well, now we're getting into 1977. Right. So then, of course, you know... End end of seventy. Are we getting so end of seventy six, December the first. Pistols go on Bill Grundy. Yeah. Um, it all kicks off December the second. The Daily Mirror, the Filth and the Fury, and all of a sudden, England is freaking out <laughs> about the Sex Pistols. They're public enemy number one. Uh, There's rubbish on the streets. There's strikes yeah, everywhere. It's, it's but public enemy is, number one was the four dis- boys. Yeah, from London. Four, four lads from London. It's the winter of discontent. It's uh, James Callaghan's government collapsing, uh, and 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 all the rest of it, and you know the the the, the and of course you know and 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 now and then I'm arriving in, in the UK. <laughs> so so your arrival into the UK in 1977 from South Africa was a big cultural well, moment. Well, I have to tell you, it was a big. T- and this this podcast is about us and the yeah. influence this music had on us. And I'll tell you, but you know, I so I arrived. It's been the hot summer of '76. All this stuff is going on. That has happened, and so punk now has been catapulted into the mainstream. Here's this young lad, arrived from South Africa, I know nothing about music, I know nothing about what's going on, and all over the TV and the newspapers and, and, and everywhere is this story, you know... The filth, and the, fu- the filth and the fury. The filth and the fury. About punk, and of course I'm like, you know, looking at this going, this is me, this is speaking to me, you know, they are summing up everything I feel about my frustrations with life and, you know, being... Well, was young. that the frustrations of 
being in South Africa or just being a teenager? Well, probably all of it. And, yeah. and having to, and being uprooted and coming over here and you know uh, and um, just just the sort of how disjointed life felt and you know all of the things that you know you're going through when you're in your teenage years and then the pistols are on TV and these and the whole punk thing is starting to sort of filter out into the mainstream of which I was because I was young yeah and, and I and I immediately latched onto it and I remember. Um, I remember one, uh, and I remember being uh, in a, uh, with a work do recently. Well, no, not recently, a few years ago, and we were talking about our first singles. Right. What okay. was the first record that you bought? And I've still got my Pistol singles. Have you? Yeah. All right. And, and that I bought back in those years. Mine was slightly earlier. Yeah. See, because I. Mine was George Harrison, My Sweet Lord. Oh well, you know, we you don't need to. We, we don't judge. Nothing wrong with the Beatles. Well. You know, we talked about it in the first episode about oh, the not, damned. I'm not going there. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, but I'm sure you've all had embarrassing first singles or, you know. Oh, we want to hear about your first singles. Yeah. Come on, email us, deadsnotpunkpod at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter, deadsnotpunkpod. Tell us about your first singles. We want to hear about your first singles, <laughs> and we will talk about them in episode three. Yeah. First singles, embarrassing or not, and also, what were your first punk records? What were the? Because you know, not a lot of punk records had come out, of course. I remember um, there was two record shops in the town that I grew up in. One yeah. was called Speed, of which it was which was a yeah. great great name for a record shop in seventy six, seventy seven. Yeah. Although it was slightly. Before then, that it opened, I'm sure it opened about 73, 74, and um, very much, very much like the scene out of High Fidelity. You'd walk in there, you'd be really shy, yeah. didn't know what he asked for, didn't you? And the guy behind the, the counter, I think his name was Hank, and uh, he, he just he, he just looked like Neil from the Young Ones, right? And <laughs> uh, you know, and you're sort of like you you were scared to ask, but they had. Uh, window strips, see-through window strips of yeah. the new records that were out, and I, uh, and I saw this record in the window, and I was like, "Wow, that's bigger than a seven-inch single." It was a twelve-inch. I think it was a picture disc or coloured vinyl by a band from the states called the Dictators. Oh yeah. And so I'd say that's one of the first punk singles that I bought. I can't remember the name of it for the life of me. The Dictators, do you remember them? Yeah, I do, yeah, I remember them. And Wild Bill Manitoba, I think the Wild Bill Manitoba or something was in the band. Yeah, going back, but... I think they were around about, they, they, they sort of sounded a bit like the Tubes. Remember the Tubes with the big boots? Yeah, yeah, the Tubes, yeah. yeah, yeah. They do White Punks on White Dope. White Punks on Dope, yeah. yeah, yeah. The Dictators, keep talking shit, I'm going to try and find the name of that single. Right, well, I'm going to re recap here because we've got, we've been zipping around, for, so we're jumping around. We are. Like this may have to go to another episode. I know, but I am going to talk about 1977. So we've got okay. Bill Grundy, we're into 77, punk's kicking off, and of course it's the Queen's Silver Jubilee all happening around the country. Um, and of course everybody's there doing their street parties with the jam sandwiches and their Jubilee mugs and tea towels and all that stuff. And of course, the Pistols are preparing to release "God Save the Queen," which is a complete anathema to the whole of the British establishment. And what do they do with their new, newly formed signings to Richard Branson's Virgin Records? Is that they decide to sail a boat 
um, from Charing Cross Pier up the Thames to the House of, uh, House of Parliament um, with the Sex Pistols playing, um, playing music and doing a gig on the boat uh, with a banner of fell down the side with the Sex Pistols and the whole God Save the Queen thing. Now this incident is passed into musical legend and uh, you know there are a bunch of people who say they were there but the majority of people that were on the boat, of course it was Branson um, and, and the band and then you know um, Vivian Westwood and a number of other key people and loads of people from the Brom Bromley contingent, uh, Tracy O'Keefe, I think Debbie Juvenile and, and a bunch of those people. So an incident well worth researching and looking up if you haven't already done so is the, is the boat party and I think Malcolm McLaren famously gets arrested. Yeah he does and that got more press because it yeah. was all about getting as much yeah. press as you could. Right? Yeah. And well I mean I think they did that as a kind of, it was a legitimate anti-establishment statement. Yeah. You know and, and people forget how much of an impact all this had. It's easy for us to sit here and talk about a boat party down the Thames with 100 people on a boat or whatever it was. But back then, yeah, yeah. none of this. There was none of this. There was no. And, I, you know, in, in our careers in music, we sort of use those certain things that, uh, in terms of marketing, certain things that were done back in the day. Yeah. There's nothing that stopped us doing anything when it came to marketing. Because sometimes the more out there it was, and that was taking the influence from things like the boat party, yeah. things like signing the record contract outside like Buckingham Palace. Palace. Yeah. You know, and they fall out of it. You know, when they sign the deal, and they fall out of it. Sid's in the band, and they fall yeah. out of the car, and they've, they've had a few drinks. You know, brilliant. And uh, I mean, seminal, seminal moments in, in musical history and in cultural history. So anyway, so seventy-seven. Found the dictators. Just sorry, sorry to put in. The guy's name was Handsome Dick Manitoba, and they recorded an album, debut album, in 1975 called "The Dictators Go Girl Crazy." 75. In 75, yeah. right? And it was produced by Sandy Perlman, right. who went on to produce "Give Me Enough Rope" by the Clash. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. In 78. Yeah, yeah. "Give Me Enough Rope" by the Clash was produced by Sandy Perlman, who I think also produced albums for Rush. Well, I think I'm going to stop you there. Yeah, I would. We're not talking about Rush. No, we're not. Right. Noodle and nonsense. Ridiculous. Let's move on. Yeah. So you were talking about the boat party, and while I was looking there, there was the boat party, and then there was the. So this was, but this was all Mark Malcolm's vision of making them look like rascals, shall we say? Yeah, I mean, I don't. You, I just, you know, the, the, the to try and make out that they were anarchic. But oh, they were anarchic. I mean, what they were doing was anarchic. I mean, and I think there is no, there's no, you know, right. So another band that forms in 1977 is Crass. Band from the Roxy. Band from the Roxy, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Didn't want to play there anyway. anyway. Yeah. Yeah, we all know the rest of that. But, yes. you know, so Crass formed in 1977 as a, and, you know, and, and as a direct, as a direct uh, consequence of, you know, the Pistols and the Clash. Yeah, yeah. Steve Ignorant famously you know, talks about the clash. So they were anarchic, and they did they did sow the seeds for all of that. But look, we have jumped around tons in 76, 77, and we are trying to keep these episodes, you know, a little bit within, you know, sensible. So we don't just talk on for two hours, which we would do. Yeah, we so, would. We so would I'll, definitely. Well, let's, let's try and wrap it up. One of the things that I wanted to suggest is that, um, you know, where I was touching on with you there about the way Malcolm... Uh, 
famously fell out with John and all of that at the end up and there was you know he basically manipulated them into doing these things to try and promote and market the band and a lot of people it worked it definitely worked in some areas but it gave them the band as people a bit of an image that was a bit unwarranted I thought you know and one of the things that really stuck out in my mind and you be able to tell me was it in the filth and the fury the show that they did for the striking firemen on Christmas day well you oh, blimey you you are bringing a really lovely nice neat ending to 1977 because yeah. that happened on Christmas day in 1977 and it was at the Ivanhoe club in Huddersfield and it was for striking firemen yeah think and it was for their children it was for their children because they'd been on street strike for six weeks or ten weeks or something and the kids, of course, were having a nightmare. And they played two shows. And Sid and the band were there. And they bought up tons of toys and Sex Pistols badges and T-shirts. And you had kids running around in... Skateboards. Sex, Sid, and sk- yeah. And buff sex, to cake. Yeah. Loads of cake. And I think there's a sort of memories of Sid famously dancing to Boney M, you know, on the dance floor. And it's a, like a... And, and there's anecdotal footage. I think it is in The Filth and the Fury of, you know, how sort of human and, and, and how much contact there was with the band. And I, and I it was quite moving, actually. I don't want to sound stupid, but I think the Pistols really did stand for something. They are really influential in the whole story of punk. You can't talk about punk without talking yeah. about the Pistols. There wouldn't have been The Clash. There wouldn't have been so many other bands. And I know there's this whole other context of America, and, and, and we've talked about the formation of it all, but for me... The gateway band to the development of punk, whether you go down the anarcho route or whether you get into post-punk or, or anything, the Pistols informed so much of it. Next, very closely followed by The Clash, who obviously... See, I, we, we've always disagreed on this over, like, o- the, over our years, but right? The Clash, but yeah. the, you know, but having known you for so long... You know, I've, I, I have a definite leaning towards, you know, I've got a definite leaning towards the clash over the pistols. And it's, it's a big argument. I, I, well, well, not an argument. It's a very difficult discussion to have because, of course, the clash famously go on and yeah, yeah. and make a load of albums and they make an album like London Calling, which is one of the best albums ever made. Whereas pistols, in my opinion, only ever made one album. They only made one album. And it is my favourite album of all time because it encapsulates yeah. so many special things. It, there are... Right, on the next episode... Okay, we're going to talk more about The Clash. About, we're going to talk more about The Clash, but we're also, I think, we should talk about the albums that stand up Oh yeah. today, because I don't think there are many, more than ten albums no. from the period that stand up. You know, we didn't even talk about X-Ray Specs. <sighs> yeah, exactly. I mean, Never Mind the Bullets does stand up it today. It really stands up. And, you know, the production on that album, uh, Chris Thomas. Chris Thomas and Bill Price. Mixed, mixed oh, Chris, he did London Calling. He did London, yeah. He mixed it. He 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 mixed it. He did, yeah. And he right, okay. Roses and, so yeah. that 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 sort of, you know, that sort of leaves us something to tie into the next episode where yeah. we go to with that is like, you know, albums that have stood the test of time. And uh, it's a really interesting one to think about in terms of what albums came out in '77. I'm going to remind people because you need to go back and look at '76. Strangler's no more heroes, right? And you've got, you know, and um, uh, 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 but I think they did two albums in '77 because I think Rattus Neveticus came out earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. They're brilliant. I mean, amazing albums. The Jam, 
The jam, yeah. There's another one we haven't, yeah. we haven't even mentioned well yet, but I know. Well, that just that starts to go, and, and I'm going to talk, and I'm going to mention one record that came out in 1977 that I think is really influential as well, and that's Buzzcock's Spiral Scratch. The start of independent distribution for labels. Buzzcocks Bridge. and magazine. Yeah. So we've got got loads to talk about in episode three. I'd like to thank you from me for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, remember Twitter at Dead's Not Punk Pod, Instagram Dead's Not Punk Pod. Sure, would you like to say bye? Well, yeah, I would. And thanks so much for listening. Um, and I'm really looking forward to next time. Please do contact us and tell us what you think and what your favourite albums and stuff are. We do want to hear from you. Thank you to everybody who's contacted us so far. We're really humbled by the amount of great positive response we've had. And uh, really looking forward to episode three. Really humbled. And hopefully we've got the audio right this time. Yeah.